You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, the holidays are upon us, and I hope the spirit of giving will extend to supporting this show by going to bigpicturescience.org and punching the Donate to the Show button you'll find there. Molly, Gary, Sarah, and I will appreciate it. Happy Holidays! We know that the holidays are touted as the most wonderful time of the year, but sometimes they don't live up to the hype. Come by. Christmas is a bother. The noise, the crowds. I really wish it were outlawed. How can they talk about Santa Claus when there's so much unhappiness in the world? Sure, it can go well. I mean, I'm picturing a Norman Rockwell-esque dinner with smiling family members, with soft snowflakes turning the yard into a frosty wonderland, the quiet lights from a menorah. But on the off chance that you're not charging into the holidays with unrestrained glee, this episode is for you. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. This time of year can be a lot of fun. It is also loads of pressure to find the perfect gift, fulfill social obligations, keep that smile on your face, all while navigating the landmine of family dinner conversations. But don't despair. Science can help you gain perspective, hit the pressure release valve, and amp up the holiday cheer. It's handling the holidays. Other than surreptitiously spiking the eggnog, the activity that most dominates this season is the crazy and compulsive habit of giving gifts. Now, if your gift list is like mine, it's semi-endless, from your mail carrier to your in-law's second cousin twice removed. And what if your sister doesn't go for the monogrammed leg warmers? Even a benthic diving mini-sub doesn't have to deal with this kind of pressure. Maybe some perspective will help. If you think the stakes are high in your gift-giving world, imagine if your very survival and that of your species rested on selecting and offering the perfect item. Hi, my name is Adam South. I'm a research assistant professor at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. While handing someone a 12-pound fruitcake is something that only humans do, we're not the only species who come bearing gifts. So, for instance, male dance flies will give female dance flies dead insects that they can eat. 
These can also run the gamut from things that males will actually manufacture themselves and transfer into uh, females. These would be things like spermatophores that are made in lots of different cricket species. Another kind of gift, actually, believe it or not, in sagebrush crickets, the male will actually allow the female to make a gift of his hind wings in which she will actually eat them. And she will eat the flesh and she will drink the blood out of his wings as well. Okay, so this can get pretty gruesome. But just to be clear, insects will give dead insects as a gift to other insects. They will indeed. So smaller insects that are uh, prey items, they will collect dead insects. Perhaps they've found them themselves. um, And they will oftentimes, this behavior is done by, by males specifically. And so the males specifically are finding the actual prey item and then trying to give it to a female in order to solicit a copulation from her. Well, Adam, for the most part, is gift giving in the animal, I should say the non-human animal world, males giving to females in order to increase their chances of reproducing? Yeah, almost exclusively. It's a behavior that we see from males. And, you know, there's there's a variety of different kinds of hypotheses out there about why this actually happens. But in general, it seems to be something around either giving the female potentially some additional nutrients that she could then pass on, hopefully, to the eggs that that male will have uh, sired. Or it could be the case of just sort of a token gesture that is important to allow for copulation to actually happen. Do animals ever give gifts with a sense of an occasion, besides um, the occasion being sexual activity yeah, or reproduction? I mean, I mean, in, in terms of actual insects, I think most of it just revolves around sex. In terms of the insect world, everything is basically a formality, even things that might be considered worthless. So different species of uh, scorpion flies, the males actually make these really convoluted, large salivary masses or spitballs that they give to the female. And the female actually eats these male spitballs while they're in the process of mating. And so even though the gift might seem strange or not really appetizing, it's something that is generally there as something to do with making sure that a male has at least has an opportunity to try to copulate with a female. <laughs> so if anyone thought fruitcakes were <laughs> hard to digest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. The, the spitball. Um, in a case like that, how does the female know whether it's a worthy gift? In gifts that animals give that might be flashy or you have some sort of ornamentation, the female can size it up pretty quickly. But how can she tell whether or not a spitball, a particular spitball, (laughs) is a valuable gift and that whether or not she should stick with this male? That's an excellent question. In some cases, there's some evidence that these gifts are what are called honest indicators of male quality or they're honest signals, you know, that the male is actually giving something that is of higher quality. In some cases, the female can obviously visually inspect or could actually pick up and feel the actual gift itself, whether that's a spitball or something else. If it's, if you can imagine if there's some kind of prey item, she can see if it's a prey item that is uh, dried up or has some kind of hemolymph left. It's also possible that the female could be doing some kind of tasting. So if this is a gift that the female is going to be actually eating, like a uh, spitball, perhaps she's able to sample it uh, to determine whether or not it's one that she would actually like. For anyone who feels disappointed by their mate's choice of gift to them, uh, they may find sympathy among some Mm -hmm. female spiders. Yes. You write about the 
I don't want to say worthless gifts, but maybe the disappointment, perhaps, if spiders can yes, feel disappointment, exactly. that some female spiders may experience when the male spiders give their particular gift. I wonder if you could describe that for us. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of literature out there about these kind of worthless gifts. And there is a particular species of this neotropical polyandrous species of uh, spider in which the males will... They will wrap their prey item or their potential prey item up in as much spider silk as possible. And so when they arrive to potentially mate with this female with this very well-wrapped gift, they give it to the uh, female and they begin the process of copulating with her while she's trying to unwrap this gift. And uh, at times the female will find after the male's usually already done copulating with her and has run away that the gift is actually worthless. And so it may not even be an insect that's wrapped in there, or it may be an insect in which the male has already sucked all the uh, blood out of it completely. And the female is just left holding the bag, so to speak, with a uh, worthless gift that the male is able to give to her so that he was able to mate and then skedaddle out of there. So she unwraps this silk packaging to find out that there's no gift for her, but by then she's already copulated with the male. Is he purposely trying to fool her or is he just an inept gift giver? (laughs) So there's some research that shows that the males that do that are sometimes lower quality males, or there's a school of thought that there is strong selection upon males to try to deceive females or try to uh, cheat so that they could try to copulate with as many females as possible with as few gifts as possible. There's even some evidence that shows that in certain species, males will actually try to steal back the gift that they have given to the female in order to try to take it to try to find another female to mate with afterwards. Uh, So there's a lot going on there um, with that. It's as complicated as it is with humans. (laughs) It is indeed, definitely. There's an evolutionary adaptive reason behind gift giving. And I believe that crows have been known to give to humans food, perhaps stones, but even a locket. So say they found a locket, they'll give it to a human. What's going on there? What's motivating the crows? Yeah, I know that's been shown to be true, um, where crows are able to actually recognize humans that are important to them. So there's been anecdotes about humans that have actually rescued crows from a fence or from a trap, and the crows will then remember who that human is. And because that person has been important to them in their life, they're trying to establish some, some kind of bond with them. Because crows are such highly intelligent animals, they're able to remember those humans and they're able to then revisit them and give them some kind of gifts back to respond in kind. Is this one of the only cases we know of interspecies gift giving? It's one of the few that I'm aware of. I can't think of too many other examples in which that has happened. Do you think that crows, if they're disappointed in humans, that they do the equivalent <laughs> of like egging them? I mean, do they? Have I, I, well, yeah, um, or maybe just dropping uh, dropping poop all over the place. I don't know. That could that could be true. <laughs> okay, so let's keep crows on our good side. I mean, that's something exactly. That's a good uh, rule of thumb. Exactly. What about, I believe that male kingfishers have an interesting gift, kind of a gruesome gift to impress the females. What is that? Very gruesome. So both male kingfishers and male shrikes, they will capture prey and they will stab it through uh, thorns on trees, on twigs on trees, even on barbed wire fences. So they will take their prey and they will create these what are sometimes called mouse kebabs or fish kebabs, and they will have an entire array of them in their territory. Mouse kebabs. Mouse kebabs. Yes, mouse kebabs. 
<laughs> well, speaking if you just of Google mice, that, actually, um, you know, like shrikes and kingfishers with mouse kebabs, you will see some pretty crazy pictures that you would not think were, was capable of being done by a, a bird. Well, what's interesting about mice is I read that, and, and cat owners may dispute this, but that the dead mice that are laid at a the doorstep of a cat owner are not, in fact, gifts for the owner. Apparently, the cat is just tired of playing with the mouse and has abandoned its prey, often because then there's cat food right there. So <laughs> it's not actually an act of, of love and devotion toward the owner. I've read both those things as well, and it's not something that I'm aware of any actual studies on it. But yeah, I've heard that the cats are, you know, they have the prey and they're just trying to return to someplace safer to eat it. And then when they get home, they realize I got much better food inside. So they just leave it there. Well, finally, Adam, are there any, do animals ever have to clear their homes of unwanted gifts or do they ever re-gift? Do we ever see animals re-gifting something that they don't like and giving it to someone else? Um, I'm not aware of any female that once they receive a gift would want to re-gift it. I think that once she's selected the one that's the best, she's going to keep it. So besides the examples that I mentioned before where males will try to steal back the gifts that they've already given to try to use it again, I'm not aware of any other re-gifting that happens anywhere else in the animal kingdom. Okay, that may be uniquely human. Well, Adam, you've given us, I think you've inspired a lot of us with some novel gift ideas for this season in case anyone is stuck. Adam South, thank you so much for sharing the world of animal gift giving with us. Thank you for having me on the show. It was really a pleasure. Adam South is a research assistant professor at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. Well, hearing him take some of the pressure off, I mean, at least the survival of Homo sapiens isn't tied to whether I find the right four-horsepower blender for my wife, although Dr. South also provided easier and more economical gift ideas. This year, everyone on my list is getting a spitball. Human animals may not be the only ones hoping to find the perfect gift, but we are certainly the only ones wrapping them in sparkly paper and shiny bows. At least the spider wrapped his supposed gift in biodegradable silk. All that fancy wrap, it's doing no favor to the environment, as Mitch Ratcliffe from the environmental group Earth 911 tells us. And I was interested to hear about which item, enjoying growing popularity, is causing a special headache. And if you're unsure whether your wrapping paper is part of the problem, Mitch suggests the crumple test. You can recognize this very easily. If you can take a piece of uh, wrapping paper, crumple it up, and it doesn't stay crumpled up, that is more than likely something that cannot be recycled because of the way the paper has been processed. If it doesn't stay crumpled up. That's interesting because I think of wrapping paper as, you know, having a certain, I don't know, volume. It's fairly thick paper. And, you you know, it always strikes me as perfect for origami because when you fold it up, it kind of stays folded. Yeah, but you're thinking about a couple of different kinds of paper. We're talking about the stuff that is treated either with wax or plastic to make it very smooth, to give it a texture, or maybe to hold glitter on. The brown paper that we use, or newsprint that a lot of people use today as an alternative to gift wrapping, are recyclable. And you can take the packaging that you receive in the mail and send that through your recycling program, but you can't take the gift wrapping paper itself and have that recycled in most cases. And it's because it's treated paper. Well, what about the cards that come with it? I mean, that's heavy stock and it's often uh, pretty glossy stuff. 
Right. And, and again, you have to look at how the paper has been treated. So if it's got a shiny surface, it's probably not as recyclable or not recyclable compared to a plain paper card. The other kind of cards that a lot of people today receive are gift cards. You know, these PVC plastic cards that give you 25 bucks at Amazon or whatever. Those are probably the fastest growing source of holiday related pollution that we have because so many people are turning from sending gifts in order to be more sustainable to sending gift cards. But those cards themselves are something that you have to think about how they can be recycled. And those programs, uh, generally, uh, you can go to a retailer and drop those cards off for quick recycling. But many people don't do that, unfortunately. Where's the larger environmental harm, Mitch, in wrapping paper? Is it the fact that it's, you know, filling up the landfills? But, I mean, I can also imagine that it's a matter of cutting down trees. But on the other hand, the kind of trees that are used for paper are usually, you know, easily replenished. I mean, where, where do you see the big harm? Well, the harm is in uh, throwing something away after using it once. It's not necessarily harmful to create a paper package or a paper wrapping paper. But it is harmful to throw it away and not have it break down and be a natural part of the environment, to turn back into something that can be good again, whether it's in another piece of wrapping paper or soil in a compost facility where you can grow something. Uh, it is certainly the case that if you put something into a landfill and it's been treated with uh, particularly plastic, it's going to be there for hundreds of years. So. The question is whether there's any advantage at all to wrapping paper. If you can use a sheet of newsprint, that is a more sustainable approach to wrapping your gifts. On the other hand, if you take that paper and carefully unwrap your gifts rather than tearing them open, you can also reuse that paper. And so in that sense, I think that's where you can get the most runway out of a piece of wrapping paper is to use it two to three or four times before you send it through the trash. <laughs> I find that when I do that in front of the people that have given me something, you know, they, they usually don't think better of me for carefully saving the wrapping paper. I, I guess I have to do that sort of when they're not watching. My favorite wrapping paper is comic strips. <laughs> no, one, no one argues with you tearing those up. There's a lot of choices out there. Uh, I think the easiest choice to do is think about uh, a simple gift bag, something that is not a treated bag but a, a, a regular paper bag and hand over the gift in that way. You don't have to tear the bag open. Thinking about all the different ways that you could take and capture what you're using one time and reuse it later is the essence of making a sustainable decision at the holidays. Mitch Radcliffe, uh, I guess that uh, that's a wrap, and uh, I'm going to bow out now. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. Mitch Radcliffe is the publisher of the environmental website Earth 911, whose motto is more ideas, less waste. Well, it sounds so far like dead insects in a reusable bag is the best gift of the season. So we've solved your gift dilemma, but that holiday dinner is coming up. The one with the cousin who always wants to get a few things off his chest. Up next, some scientific survival strategies for seasonal socializing. For one, why keeping an artificial grin plastered across your face may not be the most effective approach. To cope with the anxiety that I have, I sit down and I think about every single possible thing that might go wrong. The benefits of pessimism. Turn that smile upside down. It's Handling the Holidays on Big Picture Science. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts 
so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Picturing a holiday meal might conjure up images of laughing family members, massive slabs of roasted meat, and a lively conversation. Or something else. Okay, don't ever shoot a thing out of me! Do That's right, maybe more realistically, garish sweaters provoking embarrassed thank yous, siblings kicking shins under the table, and your vegan daughter glaring at the turkey with sour disapproval. But there's more. After that third martini, your uncle will take a hard and loud position on a contentious political issue, and your great-grandmother will ask everyone how to get on Tinder and what hookups are. More gravy, anyone? We're talking about science tips for surviving the holidays in this episode. Now, you may have a reliable way of arming yourself against these potential social stressors, a flask, maybe your therapist on speed dial, perhaps a forced smile like armor that you keep until the last forkful of pumpkin pie has passed your lips. But what if the holiday survival tip is counterintuitive? Don't grin and bear it, says Julie Norum, a psychology professor at Wellesley College, whose book, The Positive Power of Negative Thinking, suggests that life's toughest moments are best endured by preparing yourself for the worst. The good thing about pessimism when you're anxious is that it can help you really focus on specific things that you can do to try to avoid disasters that you might imagine that are making you anxious when you think about them. Can you give me an example of defensive pessimism? Sure. When I have to give a talk, which I do fairly often, um, I can get really anxious about it. And, and that's something that people all over the country share. It's one of the biggest phobias that people in the U.S. have is public speaking. And to cope with the anxiety that I have, I sit down and I think about every single possible thing that might go wrong before I have to give a talk. And it sounds a little obsessive. It sounds like it might be depressing. But in fact, I think about it in such specific, concrete detail, like I think about tripping over the microphone cord on the way to the podium. I think about knocking over the water pitcher that's to the side of the podium. I think about dropping all of my note cards or the PowerPoint presentation not working. I think about all those very specific, tiny things. And in doing that, I'm basically planning to avoid the disasters that I imagine. So I always have at least three backups for any kind of audiovisual aspects of my presentation. I usually go check out the venue before I have to give a talk. I've been known to use electrical tape to tape down the cords on the stage. And I ask somebody to please, please move the full water pitcher as far away from the podium as possible so I don't spill it all over myself during my talk. But Julie, I mean, I, I might argue that those are all good things to do, but I wouldn't call that pessimism. I mean, that's just being thorough about anticipating problems. It isn't that you have a kind of a frowning outlook on what, what your talk is going to be like, right? <laughs> no, but the fact of the matter is there's a pretty intimate connection between 
our outlook and how we think about things. So when we're feeling optimistic, when we're cheerful and in a good mood, we actually tend to step back and take a much broader view of things. And we, we find it difficult to think about the specifics that might happen. Whereas when we're in a more negative mood, that affects our thinking. And we tend to think more specifically and in detail. So it's actually hard to do that kind of detail-oriented planning if you're all happy and in a good mood. People who are in a bad mood do it better than people who are in a good mood. People who are pessimistic are more likely to do it and do it better than people who are more optimistic. So you're saying that if you're optimistic about the talk, you you probably don't take any steps to prepare for the unexpected. You're in a, a weaker position if something goes wrong. Exactly. You're less likely you're less likely to have anticipated it beforehand and therefore you're less likely to be prepared. Now, you ran a study in which you found that people who adopt a pessimistic stance are more prepared for disappointments. That's a little bit different. That means that if you, <laughs> I don't know, if you do trip across the mic cord and spill the water on the, on the first row of the audience, you know, you're, you're better prepared for that? I mean, you're psychologically better prepared? Well, yeah, there's even a saying that captures that idea, which is that pessimists have only happy surprises, right? They're expecting the bad things. So if it happens, they're like, yeah, see, I knew. At least I was right. Whereas if something good happens, they're just pleasantly surprised by it. So it's a kind of a useful coping mechanism, I suppose. But doesn't it make for somebody who's uh, you know, always a little bit negative? I mean, I, I, I get <laughs> accused by my coworkers here on this program of having an attitude that they call Sethemism, uh, you know, and, and that, that I always say, no, that isn't going to work. Isn't there the danger that if you say, well, pessimism is actually a good thing to do, that uh, we'll be hearing more of these negative Nellies? Well, I think that we undervalue the negative Nellies, to be honest, especially in American culture. We place so much value on people being optimistic and cheerful all the time that we forget that, you know, things do go wrong and it's important to be prepared. I think we're valuing, in some sense, feeling good rather than doing well when we take that attitude. So that's one point. The other thing is, I'm not really advocating that everybody be a defensive pessimist all the time. I would never say that. But I, what I am saying is that there are important and real differences in people's outlooks and in their experience of the world and in how much anxiety they feel. And what the totality of the research that we've done shows is that if you're feeling anxious and negative in a situation, it's really not going to work very well for you to try to pretend that you're not anxious and try to pretend that you feel optimistic and cheerful. Instead, it's better to have a strategy that sort of acknowledges where you are and that can help you get to your goal. Whereas if you don't have that kind of strategy, chances are anxiety is going to really interfere with your performance and you're going to do badly. Okay, so hope for the best, prepare for the worst? I don't even know that you have to necessarily hope for the best. I think you have to put yourself in a position where you can achieve the best, and that hope may not be that relevant. When might offensive pessimism go a bit too far? I mean, is there some point when it, when it goes from a coping mechanism or a preparatory mechanism to fatalism? You know, oh, woe is me, it's never going to work. Well, I think the specificity is key to the strategy working. So if you start catastrophizing, you think of one bad thing and then you think that's going to lead to another bad thing. Like if I don't do well at my presentation at work, I'm going to get fired and then I'm going to end up living on the street. That's not very adaptive. That's not very effective. I think more generally that defensive pessimism has a good payoff for events where 
the outcome is important and there really is a realistic chance of things going wrong. But I wouldn't advocate, for example, maybe except for in Boston where traffic is awful, I wouldn't advocate using defensive pessimism for every trip that you make to the grocery store because then you're just sort of adding unnecessary negative thinking because who cares if it takes you two minutes longer on one route than the other route to get to the grocery store. So I think if you're using it for every single situation in your life, you're overusing it. So, Julie, if you know you're about to get into a, shall we say, challenging situation, you're going to that reunion with all your relatives and something, and, and you know, lots of things can go wrong, you know, what would you advise people? Should they adopt a defensively pessimistic attitude or, or just make a, a list of all the things that they have to watch out for? Well, I think it depends to some extent on how much they care. So for some people, um, they may not be so invested. Their goal might just be to get through the reunion. And then I don't think it's necessary for them to go through the hassle of defensive pessimism. But if you really have a, a more specific goal, like I want to make this as painless as possible, or I really want to avoid getting into an argument with Uncle Fred like I did last year, then I think defensive pessimism is a, is a great technique to use. Because what you can do is play through or mentally simulate all the things that Uncle Fred might say that drive you bananas. And then you can rehearse how you're going to respond or maybe more relevantly, how you're not going to respond to those triggers from Uncle Fred. Well, Julie Norum, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It was my pleasure, Seth. Julie Norum is a psychology professor at Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Her book, The Positive Power of Negative Thinking. Being a defensive pessimist has benefits, but some stressors are biochemical, not situational. I mean, you can't control whether you run into your ex at the holiday party, but if you can resist washing down the Santa sugar cookies with Chablis, you might be able to handle it better. It's a mouthful, but the paper, The Depressogenetic Potential of Added Dietary Sugar, may be your ticket to a sweeter holiday. A new study on sugar by University of Kansas clinical psychologist Steve Alardi, whose focus is etiology, or the cause of disease, describes the depressive role that sugar plays in our moods. When pies and cakes and mounds of cookies are combined with seasonal changes in light and sleep, the effect is, well, less than jolly. You know, if you go back, say, 150, 200 years ago, sugar was regarded as a very rare luxury good. It was something that the average family might encounter a couple of times a year, maybe at the holidays. So it really wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a problem in terms of human health. But now the average American consumes, brace yourself, 21 teaspoons worth of sugar every single day. And we're not talking about the sugars found naturally in foods. These are refined, processed, added sugars, 21 teaspoons every day. Holy cow. What is new about these studies? Because we already know that too much sugar is unhealthy. Even if we keep eating it, we know that it's not good for us. Yeah, absolutely. So there's overwhelming evidence that sugar is toxic, or at least can be toxic, to overall well-being and health. What, what was new really about what we were looking at was what are the effects of sugar on the brain? What are the, the psychiatric 
effects of sugar. And we found really abundant evidence, and it came from four different converging directions. I won't take a deep dive in it, but just in a nutshell, we have cross-sectional studies that show that just at any given point in time, the people eating a lot more sugar are far more likely to report major mood disorder, psychiatric disorder, clinical depression, clinical anxiety as well. Then we have longitudinal studies. Those are better because now we can track what happens to people over time, and that rules out a lot of the potential confounds of just the mere cross-sectional. And in some really large longitudinal epidemiological studies, the best ones we have, we see exactly the same effect. In the largest one that's ever conducted, the Women's Health Initiative, following 70,000 women over three years, women who were in the top fifth of sugar consumption ended up 23% more likely to be diagnosed with depressive illness over the follow-up. So to pull this out, the top 20% of the women who were studied experienced the worst of sugar's effects. How much sugar were they eating? Are we talking about two cookies a day or a, a soda every day? <laughs> How much? So the, the average in that cohort was about 80 grams of sugar per day. A, uh, a typical soda might have um, 20 to 30 grams. So we're talking about uh, the equivalent of up to four cans of soda in a day. And then finally, and this we thought was really what made our paper more compelling and novel, and that is we were able to identify six different physiological effects of sugar on the brain, each of which has been associated with a higher risk of depression. So just as a for example, sugar consumption elevates neuroinflammation, the level of inflammation in the brain. And it turns out that an inflamed brain very often is a depressed brain. Now, I think we can all picture inflammation when we get you know, we hurt our wrist, for example. We sprain a wrist and our mm -hmm. our wrist uh, becomes inflamed. We know what that looks like. We know what that feels like. I'm having a hard time picturing what inflammation of the brain looks like. What exactly is that? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. Well, I, I mean, we think about, if we take a step back, we think about what is inflammation really? And it's, it's a part of our, our body's native immune response. So if we have a splinter, we get inflammation at the side of that splinter, maybe in our finger, and it gets red and it swells. In part, that's the body rushing lots of immune cells to the site to snuff out any pathogens that might want to invade the body. The other part of inflammation is a, is a tissue repair function. So in essence, where the body's immune system is anticipating there could be some damage, and how can we rush repair factors to the site? Now, when the brain is inflamed, in part, what that means is the immune system in the brain is heavily activated to the point where it's actually interfering with normal brain signaling. So there are lots of different neurotransmitter-based circuits in the brain that start to act a little wonky under the influence of neuroinflammation. Once those immune factors are in play, they have different mechanisms through which they interfere with or perturb normal brain function. And unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, very often the inflamed brain is a clinically depressed brain. Now, Steve, one of the other findings that you made was that the effects of sugar are heightened at this time of year mm -hmm. because they are coupled with the seasonal changes in light and our own sleep patterns. It's potentially alarming, but I, I, I think there, there's reason for hope here. So here's the basic finding. 
Nearly 30% of Americans during the winter find that they have at least some symptoms of seasonal affective disorder or the winter blues. And about 10% of Americans actually have full-blown onset of depressive illness linked to the season, linked to basically the short, cold, cloudy, gloomy days of winter. So here's the thing. When people during the winter time are light deficient, they start to go into what can be thought of almost as a kind of hibernation mode where they feel sluggish, they feel sleepier, their level of circulating insulin goes up, which promotes storage of body fat, and they start craving sugar. So there's a really interesting kind of vicious cycle that sets in where wintertime causes us to crave sugar. The sugar can actually push us into a deeper state of winter depression, which can then make us uh, even more sluggish. Wow. Well, I am steaming broccoli in my mind right now. (laughs) That that will be my staple for the holiday. Well, finally, Steve, so what is your advice to all of those who are perhaps gathered for a family reunion? Things are a little tense. You still have a long list of items that you need to cross off before uh, your holiday of choice. And those irresistible warm cookies come out of the oven. What to do? Well, I'll tell you what I do. And, uh, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all approach, and your mileage may vary, but I, I love indulging just a little bit. Here's what I, what I found, is most of the reward that we get, most of the pleasure that we get from a sweet, we get in the first bite or two. And so nearly every day I will have one little tiny morsel of dark chocolate. And I savor it, and I very mindfully just really enjoy the hell out of that piece of chocolate. If if it's the holidays and there's a piece of fudge that's sitting in front of me, I'll have a bite or two. Same with the cookies, same with the pie, and, and just let that be sufficient. And um, I think many people might be surprised at how much enjoyment they can have from a, a bite or two. And then the satisfaction of knowing, hey, I have not pushed my body and my brain in the direction of a stress response anxiety, depression, and a reduced sense of well-being. Steve Alardi, thank you so much for the tips on how to keep our brains happy during the holidays. It's really been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Steve Alardi is a clinical psychologist at the University of Kansas, and you can find a link to his paper about the metabolic effects of sugar on our website. Well, you heard that my suggestion is just steam a whole lot of broccoli and don't eat anything else. Well, you know, it has the advantage. I like that strategy. I mean, it obviously gets rid of the sugar, uh, but it also probably gets rid of the relatives for next year. (laughs) That's right. What's your favorite indulgence, sweet indulgence during the holidays? Well, I mean, it's probably the same as the non-holidays. I do do have some chocolate. And, uh, you know, I, I, I usually buy the higher percentage cocoa uh, chocolate, you know, 70%, 80%, 90%, maybe with some nuts in there. And, and that is, you know, really like it, got to say. All right. Well, you have tips to get you through gift giving and family reunions. Of course, you could just opt out of participating in these things altogether. But unless you pledge not to leave your house until after New Year's, there's no escape from... It's called an earworm. How it gets into your head and how to get it out. Next. This will be music to your ears. It's Handling the Holidays on Big Picture Science.
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. You know when it's the holidays. I mean, you know because the Halloween candy hasn't even been cleared from the supermarket shelves when you hear this. As if there were no time of year when we more desperately needed quiet to collect our thoughts, when all hope of peace is driven from our heads like a little drummer boy amped up on too much baklava. Maybe no one has had to endure more than retail workers who have to listen to Rocking Around the Christmas Tree and I Had a Little Dreidel for months, sometimes hearing them dozens of times during the shift, having to listen to songs about snowmen and Santa over And over at the mall or at the cafe, that is bad enough. But when they follow you home, it feels like there's no escape. That's because, according to Elizabeth Margulis, the director of the Music Cognition Lab at Princeton University, you've been infected with an earworm. This is a common term for the experience when music gets stuck in your head. Rather than an entire Tchaikovsky ballet playing over and over again in my head, something I'd actually enjoy, it's usually just... 10 seconds of a snippet of a melody. Now, how exactly do these earworms form? How do we get rid of them once they're embedded? And why would Dr. Margulis study a phenomenon with obvious on-the-job hazards anyway? I think it's actually a pretty fascinating window, potentially, into how our mind works, in fact, because it turns out that lots of other domains that seem pretty similar to music, speech, for example, don't have this sticky property in the same way. So it can help us get at questions about how we represent information, uh, what music is, what speech is, how they relate to each other. You know, it seems to me, although maybe this isn't true, but it, it seems to me that the kind of earworms I get tend to be tunes that these are kind of worthless tunes. Is, is that typical or is that just uh, I happen to notice the worthless ones? Right. I think it depends on how recently and how repeatedly you've been exposed to certain music. And another part of it is just that certain kinds of tunes do seem to be stickier. They seem to be tunes that are pretty familiar. So they they follow kind of an established pattern, but they also have some kind of twist. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah, so much Hanukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. So there's this combination of this kind of optimal mix of predictable and surprising, and and tunes that do that tend to be stickiest. Um, But I'd also say that earworms are triggerable in these really interesting oblique ways. One common 
method that I've noticed in my own household a lot is, you know, some other person is is kind of whistling something and then you find yourself singing your and you can't figure out how you did it right and then that person's like well I was just whistling that okay well I mean usually when we have a common behavior with all the other homo sapiens out there walk on the streets there's some evolutionary benefit or at least a reason that we have it I mean this repetition of this song, and I certainly get it several times a week, it kind of reminds me of how children are reported to repeat sounds or words. And you can understand they do that to learn them. Uh, do earworms serve some survival purpose? Oh, my goodness. That's an interesting uh, speculative question. I mean, I do like the connection you're drawing between our adult and childhood experiences of earworms and um, the way we learn sound sequences as children. So we all know that, um, you know, if you've had experience reading to your kids, uh, you pull out like a glossy new book that you're excited to share with them and they just want the same thing you've read to them for the last 12 nights in a row. Um, and that's that's a, a difference in this kind of appetite for repetition that children have compared to adults. They're learning things by watching you and repeating it. And that continues even in adulthood to be an important part of having appropriate empathetic responses and so forth. And, and in fact, we know that this repeated exposure to music is an important predictor of uh, earworms. But, I mean, what is it helping us to do? I mean, I don't need to memorize those, you know, those those tunes. They're, they're usually pretty crummy tunes, actually. Yeah, that's what I think that's what's really interesting about earworms is that they're, you know, by definition, involuntary. So, you know, you're not picking necessarily the most interesting kind of tunes that, that you might like to accompany your trip to the post office or, or whatever. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle you know, sometimes just really the dumbest stuff tends, tends to pop in there. You know, kind of related to that. I am able to remember the lyrics to, you know, rock and roll <laughs> was popular when I was a kid. But, but the fact that I can remember those lyrics, whereas I can't remember a single sentence that my, you know, chemistry professor uttered in all of 12th grade. Why is it that when words are set to music, we seem to be able to remember them better? Yeah, and this is something that advertisers obviously have known for a long time and um, have really worked in the form of jingles and other kinds of marketing uh, purposes to kind of capitalize on that ability of music to carry messages into our minds with kind of a, an immediacy and, and a lasting uh, sort of power. Did anybody ever put somebody in an fMRI machine and, you know, have them I would wait till they have an earworm and see some part of their brain lights up. Yes, in fact, lots lots of people are doing that at the moment, and it's you know one of the innovations here that has made that possible um, is learning that it's actually really easy to induce earworms in a lab laboratory setting. So all it turns out you really have to do is bring people in and play them a song that's been known to trigger earworms commonly. Um, and I could tell you what those songs are if you wanted, but I can't take <laughs> responsibility for what happens next. As, as long as it's not, it's a small world after all. I mean, all. you said, I didn't say that. And um, so as you play them a song, a song like that, and then you have them complete some kind of task that 
doesn't require very much attention. So an example of that might be tracing a dot that's moving slowly around a computer screen, just following it with your mouse. Uh, because we know that in those kind of mind-wandering, low-attentional states, earworms are likeliest to crop up. Um, and so when you set people up with that kind of uh, paradigm, generally in something like over 70% of cases, they get some snippet of the song stuck in their head. So it makes it pretty easy to study. Uh, do apes have earworms? I mean, I, maybe they just don't tell us. But if you can tell when somebody's having an earworm by putting them in an fMRI uh, scanning machine, maybe you could do it with apes, although I don't know they lie still or anything? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I don't I don't know the answer to that question, but one idea people had was, well, maybe this is just an artifact of the weird auditory world we inhabit here in the 21st century, where there's recording technology and we hear, we're exposed to these songs again and again. Maybe that's, you know, some unique situation. Um, but we have some pretty good historical evidence that uh, people were getting earworms. I mean, this isn't apes, but people before there were there was recording technology were getting earworms. So one example of that is a short story by Mark Twain, where he talks about an earworm that takes over this this entire town, and that story dates from before recording technology was widespread. Well, you've included earworms in your uh, in your studies, in your profession. Uh, does that mean you get a lot of earworms? I mean, are you having earworms every day that you, you know, sort of try and analyze? I actually, I hear this a lot from my colleagues in music, in fact, from a lot of composers and performers who tell me that they constantly have music in their head. You know, at any moment, you could just stop them and ask what's playing in their head, and, and they could tell you. So, so I, that's pretty fascinating. I don't think I'm really myself an outlier in, in that. I think um, lots of times the things that I've studied um, have been things, in fact, that my students have shown me are important, and earworms are, are in that category. Well, finally, Elizabeth, the big question. Uh, I often find my earworms to be really annoying. You know, they've been playing for a few minutes and I kind of wake up and I realize, my God, this tune, you know, it's in my head. I don't even like it. I want to get it out. Uh, I, I think I read somewhere that chewing gum might help. I mean, is there any trick to stop the earworm? Yes. So that that the chewing gum thing is true. That's um, a real finding that's out there in the literature. Also, another thing people suggest is uh, since they tend to crop up in these low attention states, that if you get yourself occupied by a task that requires a lot of attention, that can be a good way of getting over the earworm. Or, you know, if worse comes to worse, you can listen to or imagine a song that you hate less, thus substituting something less objectionable for the initial earworm. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll try and keep that in mind if the earworm doesn't displace it. <laughs> Elizabeth Margulis, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. Elizabeth Margulis is director of the Music Cognition Lab at Princeton University. So what's the big picture here? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of science in the uh, celebrations. 
You know what it is? We can use science to help cure disease, answer the big questions about the universe, build more ecologically sustainable cities, and use science to get us through the holidays. You know, these are the big things that we need science to help us do. What struck me over and over during the course of this program was the fact that our behavior is actually a reflection of behavior we see in other critters too, whether it's giving gifts, obviously for slightly different reasons, or the earworms. I mean, it's unclear, but earworms are a form of, you know, training our brains that presumably goes on in other critters. I mean, you know. It may go on. She said that was a good question. Um, We're not sure about that. Perhaps apes have earworms. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And also the idea that, you know, that happy attitude that you try and cultivate might not actually prepare you so well for real life. Or the office holiday party. No, that's true. One of the big take-homes is to cut back on the sugar. I don't know about you, but I'm very sugar-sensitive. I'm not saying cut it out altogether, but just enough so that you can get through that awkward family dinner or the office holiday party. Yeah, but when they put that Christmas pudding in front of you after a mammoth meal, do you say, oh, no, I'm trying to cut back on sugar? Do you? No. Or or do you just pick up your spoon? No, I pick up the spoon. No. I don't say no to anything. (laughs) That's the problem. I know what I should do. Right. Right. But that's different from what I actually do. Well, thank you to those who do get us through this show every week. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Reno Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the chemistry of organic sugars. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and I do my best to avoid inadvertently picking up earworms. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears and your earworms have been attuned to a special episode of Big Picture Science that is called Handling the Holidays. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find lots of episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links to the guests that you heard as well. And here's a perfect gift. Share our podcast with everyone on your list. You'll find links on our website to the many platforms that carry us. And meanwhile, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and Happy Winter Solstice. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, 
new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.